Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I am here today with two very special guests. I've got Patrick and Graham from Mirror, the decentralized content platform that I'm sure all of you have heard about, if not participated in the right race and contributed to. So welcome so much, Patrick and Graham. I'm so happy to have you guys here today. Great to be here. Yeah, Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So before we dive into Mirror, which I've, I've got a million questions for you guys about Mirror, but I'd love for the listeners to hear a little bit more about your backgrounds, who each of you are. So Patrick, do you want to get us started and just tell us a little about your crypto journey? When did you first hear about it? What was it that piqued your interest in, and how did you get from there to here? Yeah, definitely. So I started out of school at Instacart as a software engineer. That was a lot of fun. First time working in down an actual like production code base. But then after like three to six months, every project pretty much looked the same. And so I was trying to figure out what to do next. And then randomly one day got an email from somebody from this company called Dharma. And they said they were starting a growth engineering team. And they said that my past experience is something they needed. And turns out that Graham was actually one of the people that he was my hiring manager. And like my first interview was with Graham. And I still remember like we did a little I don't think we did a coding challenge, but he was basically like, I was trying to ask him because I wasn't like super deep into crypto. I was one of those people who was like 2012, 2013, like got hacked by Mt. Gox and all that. Lost my private keys three times. Like I still was pretty new to it. And Graham was explaining, I was like, okay, what, what are you guys trying to do? And at that time they were trying to be like a crypto native bank. And then just like the way he was talking about it, it was like people were not talking about other products that I had seen in that way where it's like, oh, we're going to do this global permissionless system. It's the future of the internet, technology, finance. And yeah, just seeing his excitement, I was just like, oh, wow, this is pretty interesting. And worst case, I went through more interviews and was like, okay, I don't know if this company is going to, I don't know what's going to happen with them, but the people here are really smart. And so worst case, yeah, I just worked with really smart people for a few years and then yeah, figured out from there. And so that's kind of how it got started. Nice, nice. All right. And Graham, what about you? So you got into the space, I'm assuming before Patrick did, since you were his boss for a little bit. What's your story like? Uh, yeah, so I actually worked a little bit at a hedge fund that had a cryptocurrency um, called Numerai that was uh, founded by a friend of mine from high school, actually, Richard Crabe. He already like got me into it. And, and that like, gave a lot of legitimacy to crypto. The fact that he was like kind of betting his company on it. You know, after that, I went to Dharma, um, the Dolph Hollander, just graduated ready at that time and had these like crazy plans for building lending and borrowing on chain. And so I did that for, you know, like three, three years or so, you know, before Mirror. So then you're both working at Dharma and then uh, where did the idea for Mirror come from and how did that get started? I was working on this like NFT metaverse idea on Arweave, um, kind of like far out there. I was like really into like the idea of like, like gaming platforms on blockchains. And I thought Arweave was like very interesting as like a novel, like storage platform. Dennis Nazarov, who isn't here, but um, Dennis was working on Feedweave, which was like Twitter on Arweave. Um, so we were kind of working on very similar things. And he was raising at the time to build out like a publishing platform on, on Arweave. And I really wanted to do like NFT gaming, but also like I really wanted to do Kickstarter on Ethereum. So I had these like two ideas that were conflicting, but but very much like in thinking along the, the same lines as Dennis. Yeah, we ended up sort of joining forces instead of doing like separate projects. But he had already raised like the, the seed at that point. So things were already like sort of kicked off. Founding story, we, we met on Twitter and we didn't actually like meet up in person for like months. So we were like building this whole thing without really like knowing each other personally, which is cool. COVID story. That's pretty much the way you meet people these days, right? Is every founding story is going to start with, yeah, we met on Twitter or we met on Discord, we met on Telegram and didn't see each other in person until like months later. It's funny because Kayvon Turanian had actually like introduced us via email like months and months before, maybe a year before that. Even then we were both interested in Arweave and we were like, everyone's like sleeping on this platform. Um, and he made the intro, but we didn't actually do a call. 
And so we were both like really working on the same thing. And then I think Sam Williams from, from Arweave actually like, you know, pushed to get us to, to talk. So fascinating. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So, okay. So mirror, it's a decentralized content platform. So then where did this idea come from? Like, obviously you guys identified some sort of problem or gap in the system that we have today in the web two world and decided to solve it with mirror explain like that thought process to me. Yeah. I mean, so this is a lot of like Dennis's thinking at the time, there's a lot of platform risk with the traditional like publishing platforms. And it seemed to quite quite obvious that somebody should build something on top of, um, you know, Farcoin or, or Arweave or one of these decentralized um, publishing platforms. And then you can create like gateways on top of that. And that, that there's a very like straightforward like story around that. The other thing that's interesting is not just, you know, this unstoppable storage um, or like publishing platform, but how do you integrate that with Web3? Because we have all these amazing tools. And I think it was something that like intuitively to us, we didn't think like the power of DeFi was necessarily going to make its like mainstream adoption in the form of like a like a fintech bank necessarily, um, which is kind of what I was working on at Dharma, but it might actually have these more interesting applications, um, you know, for creators and for, you know, like a writer basically like crowdfunding their projects or, you know, doing like NFTs of their work, something like that. And like weirder ideas like that, that, that come through that sort of like emerge um, out of using these or like integrating these different technologies. So I think that's like something that we were interested in probably more than than the idea of just like an unstoppable publishing platform, which is, you know, a much simpler kind of thing to do, I think. One crazy thing to me is that Mirror's only been around for about six months or so, which it, it seems like you've been around for far longer than that. Walk me through like how Mirror has developed as a platform and how it's grown and how you've been able to grow it so quickly like just take us back to like the the original days of mirror and then how it's evolved till today yeah so we have this we have this like great like blog post called the the mvp before christmas that like has, has really details the story but we started working on like the publishing platform really like around you know like december 10th or something like that um and we had the first person who wanted to use it which was was trent he wanted to make this publication called stateless and he wanted it you know, by the new year or something. So we made this like arbitrary deadline. Uh, and there was all these things to work out, like publishing into Arweave for one, but you know, just that the whole like sign up process, like how does somebody like log in? Do we use Web3 with like, you know, something like MetaMask for sign in? Um, how do keys work? Do you sign with your Ethereum address? If so, you know, then you have to sign every time you do anything on the platform that that's kind of tedious. So thinking through the, the cryptography, we ended up actually using different signing keys, which we stored in the browser so it allows you to like automatically sign things without you know actually explicitly signing it through something like metamask thinking through all these things um you know there was like a lot of complexity and then we just like rushed to kind of get it done by by christmas um which was which was very stressful a lot of like late nights but we ended up kind of doing it uh, but that set the pace right because once we had like achieved that we just we didn't really want to slow down so we, we ended up you know continuing with that kind of momentum you know, that, that led, you know, to, to the original like decisions of, okay, now we have this publishing platform and it's token gated. So you need a token to get into it, which creates like civil resistance. A civil attack is basically people counterfeiting their, their identity to, you know, create multiple accounts on the website to, you know, maybe just domain squat or something like that. So we, we token gated it, but then we didn't want to issue tokens and just give it to people. Um, and so we came up with, with the right ways, which is actually kind of like one of the ways that became very popular because people could see a list of candidates and then vote for them. And that was kind of fun. It was like a staking game. That was pretty cool. So there, there, I think there were 17 people that were originally led into the platform um, before we made the, the decision to make it a, a race with voting. Um, but those those were like the early days. And that that's a kind of what like set us up. Yeah, I remember like back in December, like Graham and I chatted and said I was in Tulum for a bit and then I was like yeah what is he said that he was at mirror I was like, oh that's interesting what is it and then he was like oh we're still trying to figure it out because this was even before yeah they shipped that first MVP and then we're still trying to figure it out because it's kind of like crypto substack and I was like oh okay it's like that's interesting he was like yeah but we're still figuring stuff out and I was like oh, that seems interesting but is it just like substack with like crypto payments and it's like I already went through that at Dharma where it's like oh you just like I think it's a bit too early for like Venmo just works pretty well and so even though in the long term, I think that crypto is going to be used for like peer-to-peer transfers, 
But then, so I was like, yeah, I kind of put it in the back of my mind, just kind of explored other ideas. Then a few months later, ended up seeing the thing that put them on the map for me was the tokenized crowdfund with John Palmer. It was the essay token. And at that point, I was like, oh, this isn't just like payments with crypto. This is a new way of financing projects. This is a new way of sharing revenue and monetization strategy, not just a subscription. Like you have ownership in this. And it was still like iterated a bunch from that. But and then the next few months really was all around like shipping individual experiments around our economic tools. And it's like internally, we view ourselves less as like a publishing platform, more as like an economic protocol. And so examples are the crowdfunding. There's the auctions, there's NFT editions, there's splits, and then ideally we're going to add more over time. And so, yeah, this first phase has been around just iterating, experimenting with different economic tools. And now this next phase we're going into is like, how do we build a unified protocol? How do we build a scalable way to onboard people? How do we give community members like ownership in this protocol as well? Yeah, I want to dive into uh, a lot of that a, l- a little bit more. Patrick, since you just brought up all of the different features, can you dive a little deeper into each of those features, like the crowdfunds, the auctions, the splits, all of that, especially for people who aren't on the platform yet and maybe haven't had a chance to take a look at it? Like, Can you explain how each of those features work and help people understand how this is different from... Because I've heard a lot of people, you know, like you said, compare it to like a decentralized Substack or a decentralized Medium. I just want you to explain to people why it's different from that. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of people talk about the creator economy and... Yeah, to me, creator autonomy means that the next like small to medium-sized businesses are going to be these individual creators or these small teams or these small communities. And so Mirror is basically building the crypto tools to enable that, enable creators and communities to have their own small, medium, or very large business. And so if you think about a business, you have a bundle of different tools and services. So one of them is financing, raising money. Second one is monetization, a way to make money. A third one, especially in crypto, is governance. Like once you have all this cash flow on chain in a treasury, how do you decide how to spend it? How do you make decisions on who to hire, who to onboard? And so it's really a bundle of, of those three main things, like financing, monetization, and governance. And so all the tools fit into one of those categories. And so crowdfunding, that's for financing for a project, for raising money. And then in terms of monetization, that's NFT additions. And then there's also NFT auctions. And so the auctions, you have like one NFT you can set a countdown or like a duration for the auction and as soon as and then also set a minimum price and then when someone bids that minimum price kicks off the auction and so people have probably seen that if they've explored different nft marketplaces and so other one is nft additions where you set a fixed price and then a fixed quantity and the people buy them and so and then another one in terms of monetization is splits so that's a way to it's kind of like a tip jar but also a way to share revenue on nfts we've seen people use that as a way to like trustlessly like donate to different causes that they care about. And so we've seen a lot of donations go to Gitcoin, MintFund, et cetera. And then lastly, in the area of governance, that's one that we're still thinking through. And yeah, Graham, he's like the big brain behind the smart contracts, thinking through that, the implementations, how to make it like super gas efficient and governance is a thing. So yeah, and, and like be good to get Graham's thoughts on the governance part and how we're thinking about that. We just came off of like a really intense sprint. Like I, I'm, I'm actually exhausted. Like I've, we did like 14 days of, just very, very intense work in the sprint to, to basically uh, unify all of these tools. So like, it sounds like we have a lot of things, right? We have, you know, splits and, and crowdfunds and additions, all that, that you just heard. Um, how do we, how do we unify this? Like, how does this become a protocol? Um, how is this the mirror protocol? Is it just a bunch of libraries that we've researched and developed and, you know, like everyone's just going to kind of take it and, and unbundle it somewhere. And basically like the idea is that we want to create like a community of value where, Everyone is kind of unified and working together to like make something bigger, greater than the, the sum of the parts. And that's really like what a, what a DAO is or a community is. The way to do that, I think, is to build tools, um, to have a treasury that takes a fee on the usage of these tools, and then to distribute ownership and governance of that treasury. I think that that's, broadly speaking, that's what we're practicing in the space right now. Every protocol is basically just practicing this. Like, how, how do we do this? Um, how do we create value, create a set of tools? create communities and then like decentralize ownership of it so that it doesn't end up, you know, just enriching like a very few number of people, you know, in the way that web two companies did. So that's kind of the goal. Um, and I just view, view us as just like building this muscle in the, in the community right now, of, like, you know, creating these things and decentralizing them. And that's kind of the process. And so, yeah, the last like couple of days that we've basically done is um, deployed a treasury 
linked some of our tools to it, allowed people to specify how much they want to pay in terms of a fee to their treasury. And then that treasury actually um, will distribute ownership to the, the end user, which is claimable if they are a member of the Mira um, community. If they've gone through the right race, which is kind of a know your, know your community, KYC process, they get voted in or they get, they get a right token sent from someone else. Um, and then they can they can sort of claim ownership over the treasury. And of course, there's a lot there's a lot to to go into like you know in further detail. Like does you know how do you do governance through that process? We've just seen today Uniswap like have quite a quite a bad situation. Like Vitalik wrote about this this week as well. Governance um, through coin ownership is not necessarily the best thing. And so we're, we're going to have to figure that out. But for now, it's like you know the thing we're practicing is decentralizing ownership over this. Um, and so we have some cool ideas, but yeah, we haven't really announced them. <laughs> for sure. And and for reference, we're recording this on August 19th. So um, like the stuff that Graham is talking about with Uniswap and stuff, that's just for reference, it's going to come out later. So people are going to be like, what? What is he talking about? Cool. So I, I want to talk about the right race. You brought that up a few times. And this is something that uh, has been like... <laughs> On, on every Wednesday on crypto Twitter, that's like all you see in the newsfeed is everybody entering right race. And that's also when I get all these like tags and DMs and my notifications just like don't work for me anymore. Um, but the right race is actually, I think, like one of the most fun and engaging ways of onboarding that I've seen out of any Web3 project. And I think a lot of people would echo that sentiment. I think like the one sort of like, criticism that it's gotten is that it's sort of turned into some people view that it's turned into a uh, more or less a popularity contest where if you just know the right people then you can get enough votes to get on the platform and it's getting more and more competitive so you know like when i joined mirror it was like back when it, it just every week I, I would just like get some more votes and it took me quite a few weeks to get on but nowadays it's like if you know the right people you don't you just know like six or seven of the right people they throw you you know all of their votes and you're in um, and that's all it takes. But if you don't know the right people, that's like a lot of votes to accumulate in order to get in. So you guys actually just launched a new, I guess like not replacement for, but like in addition to the right race, this airdrop. Can you explain what that is and the thought process for why this was created on top of the right race? Yeah. Well, I want to I want to say, first of all, like the right race was not intended as a growth hack. It was intended as a way to 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 not have the team decide who gets in i think in some ways you know we, we launched it as an mvp and people really liked it and then it, it grew faster than we were able to scale it and so it ended up being this thing where people people really enjoyed it but it was like it was it was sort of artificially um it was like too slow for people in a way what we wanted to do was was expand it but i think that the the popularity contest uh criticism is sort of sort of correct so the trick is to say, like, how can we actually be more sophisticated about this and, and actually, like, expand the network in a more thoughtful way? And while we were thinking about this, Andrew Hong, which he, who's the data scientist at, at who's working at Consensus, he did some network analysis on Mira, just sort of trying to figure out, like, how centralized those relationships really are and, and, and express that criticism with data. And that was really great. So, so we engaged him and, and, and I just said, well, why don't you come up with a proposal for us to actually do like an airdrop that can like, can like relieve some of this like centralization that's happening. He did that. And I worked with him, you know, for a couple of iterations over the course of like a, a month, a little bit over a month on basically an algorithm where we could say, if you've interacted with the protocol by buying something, or if you are you know, voted in, in the right race, if you voted multiple times, you can sort of get a score of like how much you're contributing, how much you care about this community. And then we can weight that by um, sort of a, a betweenness metric, which is going to measure like how tightly knit you are to the, the, the current like community that, that exists. And if we can find bridges to other communities, that would be really great. So if we could find somebody who has, you know, like a, a community maybe um, in Asia, which which is like not a lot of our, our current users, um, most of our users are, are kind of like American centric. We can bridge to like new communities through that person. Um, and so it would be good to give them more tokens because they can like then distribute it out themselves. And that was this week's ex experiment. So we did the, we did the, the drop, I think 
but yesterday, <laughs> yeah, yesterday morning, um, we did an airdrop um, of 302 tokens that are sort of like very strategically um, allocated to people who have like different networks, but also care about Mura. So, you know, that that's like one experiment and we'll just learn from that and keep going. And I think, I think we'll eventually get, get something that's interesting and good. Yeah. And then I'm curious to hear too, like if you're able to share what was the strategy that went into like deciding how much mirror each person got airdropped. Yeah. So we did many, many iterations. It's all algorithmic. Um, we did not decide, you know, per person what anyone should get. Um, what we did is uh, we try to just be principled about saying we want to reward people who are participating in the community. We want more of, more of that. That's great. Like, so for example, if you do the right race every week and you're voting, um, it would be sort of a travesty of justice if you didn't get any right to tokens dropped, right? That, that would be terrible. Um, so at, at a minimum, you know, we want to reward that kind of um, behavior, like reward, but you, you know what I mean? Like just, um, just honor those people's inherent interests in the platform. We want to amplify people who might like bring more diversity to the platform because diversity is actually extremely important to Mira um, for many, many reasons. And the right race has been pre pretty good about diversity, I think, you know, looking at what we have, but but we still have centralization in terms of like who knows whom um, in these like networks. So we want to branch out to different networks. And so that's that's basically we just amplified certain people in that sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you guys about is you've done a fantastic job of building this community of people who are on Mirror or just obsessed with Mirror and entering Right Race. I mean, I, I know people who are like, I can't write for my life, but like they participate in the Right Race every week. They're super involved. How have you been able to build up such a strong community, especially in such a short period of time? I think it's the nature of crypto in general. I mean, I think the multiple things. One of them is just that crypto community. It feels like, in many in some respects, like within the Ethereum community, it feels like we're all in this together and we're rooting for each other. There's positive sum mentality, and then I think that's like on a macro level. And then specifically with Mirror, yeah, I think that it's fairly. I think what we're doing is like with the creator economy and all that. It's like the experiments that we're running, they're a lot of fun, and I think frankly, a lot of like Packy wrote about this recently where it's like a lot of it's around status and it's like being on mirror and like getting into the right race. And yeah, definitely that's, that's like an inherent human thing. And, and so I also think that yeah, people wanting to get in, we've also noticed that yeah, not everybody that gets in through right race to your point, people are like, Hey, I, I don't plan on writing. I don't want to write. I just want to be seen. I just want to be at the top there. I just want to get a bunch of votes so that I can vote my squad in. And so I think frankly, that's another part of it as well. But yeah, we viewed that as, in many ways, that's the on-ramp. That's the way to get people interested, downloading MetaMask, interacting with it, setting up their publication. And then now it's up to us to build more of these like recurring use cases. That's really just like getting people into the door, opening the door, showing them the house and then walk in. And then now we got to make sure that build engaging experiences, recurring things that they're using the platform, they're building businesses, they're building communities, they're having a good time and they're using it frequently. And that's kind of our, our next phase and what we're trying to do. Yeah. So speaking of that, I'd be curious to hear, you know, from uh, both of you, like what are some of the coolest projects or uh, uses of Mirror that you've seen so far, whether by individuals or companies or um, or anything? Because I've really seen a spectrum. And for people who aren't familiar with it, it'll help to hear some examples of how people or projects have been using Mirror to you know, help them understand the full um, scale of what's possible there. Yeah, I think in general, there's like this new customer, there's this new like, yeah, like persona of customer with crypto and their DAOs. And yeah, there's like a whole spectrum of what the definition of a DAO is. It could be like a massive DeFi protocol with billions of dollars in their treasury, or it could just be a telegram group with a, a multi-sig and just some funds that they're in NFTs that they're collecting. But I think at Mirror specifically, one that we've seen that I'm really impressed with is called SongCamp. And they're a music DAO and there are a bunch of musicians that They've tried to get record deals or they've been on Spotify and gotten hundreds of thousands of plays or millions of plays only to get like $100 or $1,000 for this hit song that went viral. And so they're experimenting, okay, what are new ways of collaboratively creating music? And then also new ways of collaboratively earning revenue and getting paid directly for music. And so they started, they ran an experiment with the crowdfund and then that turned into doing these different camps. And right now they have a themed camp called Electra and then they raise money through a crowdfund. And then not only did people yeah, 
end up getting these fungible ERC-20 tokens. They also got these NFTs, and so they got both. And then the ERC-20 tokens gave them access to a Discord server. And then in the Discord, they're doing this like crazy game where they have to like unlock all these puzzles and figure out these riddles, and you work on it with people. And it's like this new way of working with people and collaborating and just like building community online. And then so that's a benefit from like people contributing and being part of the community. But then for the artists, they're making... $20,000, $30,000, $40,000 every time they drop a series of NFTs. I know that this week they had three party bids bid on their three NFTs and in total it was like $50,000. And that's for like 20 artists. And so there's probably some overhead costs, but each of them probably walking away with a few thousand dollars. And so being able to see and yeah, thinking about, okay, how do we have the next 10 Electras? How do we have the next 100, next 1,000 Electras across different categories? Very cool. What about you, Graham? Yeah, I think I think we have to talk about party bid. Um, party DAO. So uh, internally, we were talking a lot about variations on our crowdfunding. Um, and one thing that Dennis was was really into was this idea of crowdfunding bid on an NFT. So like if you could have a foundation um, sale auction that was going on, like how could we how could we use our crowdfunding contract to basically like bid on on that um, NFT? And he tweeted about it and got into a um, conversation with somebody from Paradigm. And they were going back and forth in it and it seemed like it had some promise. And so he crowdfunded it on his on his blog, d.mary.xyz. And that crowdfund ended up being backed by a whole bunch of people who who were actually developers and designers and stuff. And we didn't know that, you know, in the beginning, but it was like, you know, there, there was somebody from Zero X. There was Anna Carroll who worked with us at Dharma and she was a um, smart contract developer. There was a um, designer from, from Uniswap, Khalil and a bunch of other people as well. And they all got into a discord at the end of the, of the crowdfund. And they all have these like party tokens that, that allowed them to create a discord that was token gated. Um, and they started discussing like what we can do with this. And John Palmer became sort of like the lead PM on the project and assigned some roles. Um, I had a role for, for looking over the smart contracts and then uh, Anna was going to write them. And then um, Anish, who's, who's at paradigm too. Now he, he did the front end uh, and they built a product together. And I think that that's like what a DAO is. And I think that that's like the promise of these tokens, right? It's like, you can, you can create a token around an idea with a narrative, you know, spelled out in this blog post. Um, and then the community around it can go and build something and that, that can turn into a billion dollar like idea. Um, and then you can go and like, you know, decentralize it with community because, you know, you have these tokens so easy to sort of algorithmically pass around. Um, and that's kind of amazing and beautiful, and I hope it, I hope it works out exactly like that, because um, it's a wonderful story. Yeah, and that, I think that that's that's exactly the kind of thing that we wanted to do with Mira, you know, starting starting on day one. Like, it's kind of like ideal. Yeah, party bid and party DAO. That's been like super fun to watch how that's developed. That's definitely a really good example of a big success story out there and super cool that they did that with Mirror. Um, but yeah, I, I love all the projects. I love seeing all the projects that get funded on Mirror and launched on Mirror uh, because it's it just goes to show that Mirror is so much more than just a publishing platform. You know, it's not just for bloggers that want to write stuff, but also like for the individual content creator too, I have seen people be able to write, you know, really uh, thoughtful pieces and mint them as NFTs and sell them or get people to tip them for it. And I think that's, um, that, that is also like a really good example of what we're going to see more of in web three with just content creators being able to monetize their content a lot better than they have been able to in web two. In the short term definitely is a little tricky. And, and one of my favorite quotes is like, yeah, the next big thing is going to start looking like a toy by Chris Dixon. And it kind of seems like that. It's just like, really nerdy, technical people on the fringe are using it and think it's cool just because it's novel. That's how most things start, whether it's the internet, whether it's computers, whether it's mobile phones, et cetera. And so I think we're at a similar stage now and it's tough with gas fees. Like definitely think you have to pay fees to get convert from fiat into ETH. You have to pay gas fees every time you buy something or you transfer things. And so, yeah, definitely in the short term, it's, there's some challenges, but Thing in the medium term, like next few months, there's gonna be a lot of interesting stuff where, yeah, you're gonna start seeing, you know, like crypto native social experiences and social apps where like favorites end up being some sort of NFT and badges and likes and subscribers are this token they're able to display where you're able to earn value from and different things like that. 
Yeah, for sure. And speaking of the future, like what is the future for Mir, both in the short term and in the long term? Well, I, I kind of like this uh, this new like token distribution thing that, that we have going on. Uh, I think that that's novel and it's going to justify, I think, like the, the right race and sort of like the, the civil resistance factor like quite a lot because I, I, you know, I think it gives us a superpower to be able to do grants a little bit better in the community to kind of understand that our community like doesn't have whales in it. Um, it's very much like one token per person at this point. Um, and we can do things like a, a UBI drip, which is something we're, we're experimenting with. And all this stuff is like running in production at the moment on mainnet. And we'll announce that like pretty soon. So I'm, I'm excited about that. But then there, there are all these other things too. I mean, we, we really want to lean into um, what Patrick was talking about with these, these DAOs, these like creator, creator or media DAOs um, and giving them new tools uh, to build, you know, a web three media company. Um, I think that that's like a huge opportunity and, and I hope we can serve and I hope it'll be, you know, be, like a lot better to, to build it on mirror than to, to try and do it, you know, separately because, because you'll be part of this community that's very supportive. And then I think, you know, technically like moving to L2s, um, you know, something we, we think about like all the time and I'm always, I'm always like researching that and we're always like very close to like um, making a move, but, but it's, it's still like not, it's not ready yet for us to do. But I think that, you know, that, solves the problem that Patrick was talking about with the, the, the gas fees just being really high to do tipping or something like that. It's hard to do. Yeah, yeah, 100%. We got a bunch of questions from Twitter, actually, when I announced that uh, I was going to be bringing you guys on the podcast. So I'm going to pull a few of those lots of really thoughtful questions. The first one I've got here is what was the most formative past crypto and non crypto experience that heavily contributes to their vision of mere today and maybe each of you can share like personally if you know you have some personal experiences or uh collectively since you work together at dharma yeah i i can go quick i, I did i did like tweet about this actually so i i was at this company that that um that really its mission was to distribute scholarships college scholarships to students um and we partnered with three over 300 colleges in the united states and did billions of dollars of college uh, scholarships um and i that was so important to me because i just really thought that education tech and and making sure that people could get into college was, was um, I just thought that that was really important at the time. But the problem was that it wasn't like native internet money. It was like a promise for a college to go and fulfill on, on their end. Um, and when I discovered Ethereum through through Richard at Numeri, uh, it was just so clear that this is going to solve a lot of problems and it was just going to be a much better experience. So I was, it was through that that I kind of, I got it. It just clicked for me. It was like we were building these things you call scholarship evaluation engines, which is basically a smart contract to evaluate like whether you should get a scholarship or not. But it was all just like in like Ruby code and it wasn't like, it wasn't real. It was kind of a prototype. And I was, I was just thinking the whole time, once I knew about it, that I could just write these contracts in solidity and it would be real and guaranteed. And we wouldn't have to worry about anything falling through the cracks um, in terms of like the agreements with colleges or anything like that. And that's really formative. Um, and then I worked at Numeri just a little bit, and um, they were doing this thing with like token uh, staking, where you could basically, um, you know, st uh, stake on something that you believe in, and then if you uh, are wrong, like the token gets burned, and if you're right, you get some interest. And that was sort of like a, an interesting piece, and that that informs, I think, like right race is basically like a, a staking mechanism. That's like basically where the idea comes from. Can you like vote on somebody and then participate in their success? Yeah, and then Dharma doing DeFi, I think was was critical it just and going through the bear market and kind of like understanding how the cycles work i think was very like formative too yeah what about you patrick like i said earlier i was at instacart before dharma and like one of my first few months there it was like we got an email it was either an email or during an all hands and they said oh tomorrow or like next week we're gonna have shoppers doing a protest in front of the building and they're all going to be they're upset because they're not getting paid the amount they think they should be paid or it's changing underneath them and yeah and they just they're upset with yeah with Instacart the marketplace and in the at the moment I was just like oh this is crazy it's like there's and then we had someone present internally a product manager and she's like look at the data this is like a small cohort of all the shoppers like in aggregate people are making more but that always stuck with me in terms of like the tension between like a marketplace and the participants and it's like at first you maybe have seen with Uber's 
like at first it's okay it's gonna be really cheap rides they're subsidizing they're just trying to grow they're trying to increase the number of drivers and then also the number of riders because then that just creates a positive feedback loop and so but then at some point you end up needing to whether you go public or something else happens and you need to start charging more increase prices improve your margin make more money and not be burning as much cash and so at that point there is this like fundamental tension between you know the network participants and then the network owners and the controllers and yeah that's seeing that up, up close and seeing the shoppers and not really they could in theory they could go find another job but it'd be much nicer if yeah, they owned equity in the underlying platform and underlying system and were able to make decisions were able to take all the code and create their own version of it and compete based off of market mechanisms and not just a monopoly or other things as well just access to capital and so yeah, over time, that, that definitely has stuck with me. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. Uh, another question is, the person said, a mirror-like product has been screaming to exist since the beginning of Ethereum. Why, in their opinion, did it happen now and not two years ago or two years from now? What were the quote-unquote Goldilocks zone magic that made things come together? Well, I, mean, I think I think that there were some some iterations of parks that try to do social networks and, and those didn't necessarily work out. I think, I think more importantly though, like take yourself back like, like two years in this space, like not a lot was working two years ago. Um, you know, ether was at like $80, um, you know, down from its high of like 1,200 and, and people were like very skeptical that it was going to come back. I remember watching an interview with, uh, with Fred Wilson from USV, just complaining about the Ethereum foundation and what they were doing and making all these mistakes. And, Everyone was like sort of questioning whether we'd be able to make it through and, and whether things would work. Um, and those were like basic things like, you know, DeFi didn't exist. Like, you know, DeFi was like invented around that time. Um, and so there wasn't like a Uniswap or anything like that that was really working in a kind of obvious like way with product market fit. So, I mean, nobody, I don't think anybody would really have wanted to build like a Web3 like mirror product at that time i think it just would have been like too far out like rather just like focus on on DeFi maybe and, and see if that works that would be my my take on it i just think people weren't really thinking about it even nfts and nft like that that really surprised everyone i think over the last year i, I don't think people really thought that it was going to break out the way that it did um and i can say that having you know worked with a lot of people who are already big in nfts now when foundation started for example like it wasn't an nft platform they were actually doing like real world objects that you bought on a bonding curve because you know the primitives were around DeFi, not around NFTs, and they they were amazing in that they they pivoted to something just before it exploded. But NFTs were not like the big thing that they are today, and, and people didn't necessarily think that they would be. I would say new things emerged, and and like it was hard to predict that it would be possible. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then here is sort of like a more philosophical question, but um, how does the team approach the question of NFT durability philosophically and practically? Where are people in the space getting this wrong today? Love to hear both of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, that, I think it's a huge, huge issue. And, and like when I was just before Mira, I was thinking about this and I thought that the, the NFT like platform needed to be on Arweave because it's so it's so hard to to try and make um nfts that had you know like guaranteed you know token uris or like you know the the underlying like image um whether that would actually be something that persisted you know forever it's hard to do i think it is recoverable so if you if you do have an nft that's linked to something that ends up dying so for example if the server that that renders all of your content goes away i think you can still wrap the nft um, so you can have like kind of a wrapping function that solves that problem. Um, it's much better if you are able to at least do a hash of the content or store the content on another platform and then include that a link to that in the contract. So that's like the kind of thing that, that we do um, at Mirror with our NFTs is at least store, you know, some some verifiable information so that if you do need to wrap it in the future because the underlying API goes away, you can, you know, for example, if IPFS goes away or Arweave or anything like that, you can still match the hash of the content with the online, uh, with the with the NFT, and then and then wrap it wrap the whole token, and they can sort of keep its provenance. That's an interesting point because I think what a lot of people don't realize is that with a lot of NFT art, the art actually isn't 
on the blockchain as much as I don't know how to explain it from a technical perspective, but can you explain like that whole phenomenon? And I, I guess like nobody really cares clearly because people are still buying these NFTs and just assuming that, you know, they're going to get to keep it forever, but that that's not actually the case. Yeah. So, so some of it is, um, which is really cool to see that like that is, I love when people do that. And Uniswap did this when, when you provide liquidity to your Uniswap pool, you get an NFT and that NFT um, actually has its, um, its content, like the graphic for it is uh, uh, an SVG that is stored in the contract. And so everything that you need resides within the world of Ethereum. It's all there on the on that blockchain. Um, it doesn't reach out into the external world and refer to something that is outside of that like closed loop. Um, so that's beautiful to see. Um, for the most part, it's impossible, you know, to do that when you have very like sophisticated like image, images. Um, so most artworks, just you wouldn't be able to do that and so it needs to refer to something that lives outside of ethereum and that's where you kind of get this um this issue because all of your ethereum contracts are immutable but that's not necessarily true of the image that you store depending on where you store it and so there are some protocols for eternal file storage for example rweave is one um, and ipfs is another but they're still very early and they're not particularly proven and so we'll have to see how those mature over time. Um, but a lot of people are just storing the images on S3, which is you know Amazon's you know file storage system, which is quite dangerous because if you don't pay that S that S3 bill um, every month, that that image is going to go away, and the token you know might be sort of compromised because of that. Yeah, I think that's a pretty crazy thing that a lot of people don't realize um, or maybe realize and just don't care about because they're riding the hype and, you know, just excited to be in the space. But uh, thanks for explaining that. And then, yeah, and then Patrick. Yeah, to your point, before I forget, so yeah, I think that's exactly right, where it's like many times people just don't care, don't mind, because there's other use cases. And like one way I've heard it explained that I really like is like there's like three types of NFTs. One is there's like a fully centralized NFT where no information lives on a public blockchain. And like, for example, that's something like NBA Top Shot. That's just basically like a file that lives on their server. And then second type of NFT is like a pointer where there's certain information. There's like, yeah, an event happened on chain. There's like some record of it, but the actual artwork itself, the actual file lives on yeah some other remote server somewhere. So that's the second one, the pointers. And then third is like fully on chain. And that's what Graham was talking about with something like Uniswap or even more generative projects like Artblocks. All of those are basically just like contracts, solidity contracts, and they use these different type of compression methods for ways of storing lots of data and, and all this crazy stuff. And I think that's super interesting. But for example, with TopShot, it's like the real benefit for most people is just trading and flipping them or just showing them and holding onto them for a bit. And for certain things, it's kind of like blockchains themselves. It's like Bitcoin is great. It's probably it's the most decentralized blockchain, but it's not as expressive. It doesn't have as much flexibility. And I view like these different like storage techniques, it's the same way as that you know, over time, it'll get easier to be more expressive with like fully on-chain art, but it's kind of, you gotta make trade-offs. And if you wanna be more expressive, if you want general purpose use cases, you use a blockchain like Ethereum, you use a combination of on-chain plus off-chain. But I think over time, yeah, the, the strong, form of this technology is going to be fully on chain art, like some variation of that. Yeah, for sure. And then bouncing back to the original question too, Patrick, I'd love to get your views on like how you view, you know, this question of NFT durability it is going up and down. We had this like crazy NFT hype cycle in the beginning of this year, and then it seemed to die down for a bit. And then here we are back in it again. How do you like view the durability of NFTs long-term? Yeah, I think long-term they're definitely a very, very important primitive. And I think right now it's people are memeing it because it's like, oh, it's a JPEG. But I think that the important thing is that, it, yeah, it's like this new type, it's like digital property rights is one way people have explained it. It's like this file format that now has value encoded in it and you can share it globally. And so I think just like the underlying technology and the new properties that it has and the new things that it enables, I think over the long term, they're going to win out. And once things get easier around gas fees, around onboarding, around integrating with different products. But I think in the short, medium term, yeah, it's definitely going to be cyclical like most things. It's a, that's kind of the, yeah, the traditional path of any new technology is people get too excited about it. We over-financialize it. 
people are quick flippers. They're just in and out and just want to make money and they're not here for the long term. But with every cycle, it brings in more interest. It brings more entrepreneurs, brings more engineers, brings more investors that are legitimate and end up staying for the long term and building on top of all the infrastructure that was laid down in the previous phase. And so I think over the long, there's definitely going to be cycles, bumps up and down, but I think that yeah, medium to long term, I think just it's a new type of file format for the internet. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think like the the main thing that has helped it to grow so much is really like the community that people have been able to build around these NFT projects and like the social signaling that, you know, you're able to do when you have a crypto punk as your Twitter profile pick that automatically signals something to everybody that follows you or everybody else on Twitter about you uh, without them knowing anything about you. So um, I think those are, you know, really the most powerful things at least the way that I see it. And then, okay, these next few questions, I'm going to combine it for the sake of time. So essentially what people want to know is there are, you know, sort of two sides of this, uh, of how to use Mirror. You can either build a project on Mirror or you can sort of use it as a writing platform and share your uh, your writings with people. And so from the project standpoint, what are some projects that you guys are most excited to see built on top of Mirror by third parties that we haven't seen yet? And then from the content standpoint, People want to know, will a platform like Mirror allow writers more freedom and less reliance on clickbait? And how will this change the type of content that we see produced? In terms of third party, I can do the third party tools one. And so one thing that constantly hearing is discovery, wanting easier ways to find what's trending or what's latest or what's featured or what do other people like. So I think that's one massive, massive area that we'll love to either yeah, see third parties build us work with them or whatever it ends up looking like. And yeah, I think that they could do, I think the crypto, the non, the traditional way, the web two way is you have a bunch of data, you put it into this algorithm, machine learning algorithm, you run a bunch of experiments and see, okay, what keeps people the most engaged or whatever metric you're trying to optimize. And then you shift the algorithm to production and then there you go. And this is very top-down centralized process. But of course, the crypto native way is something that looks more like right race, where you have this token, you have this way to stake your tokens on certain content or on certain publications. And then if you want to make it really interesting, you could have like a pool, a prize pool each week or each month. And then the top 10 people each week, each month, they get to split the prize pool or they get it in varying degrees. And so I think things like that will be really interesting. How do you, and Graham talks about it as a game, and I really like that framing of it. Yeah, this really is, it's, we're applying game mechanics with money to all sorts of online media and content formats, whether it's writing, whether it's producing videos, whether it's creating NFTs, anything, creating these game-like formats with tokens is going to be really interesting. Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot more gamification in everything. And I think people are finally realizing the power of gamification and how uh, effective that is in engaging, you know, everybody, um, the normies too. Graham, what are your thoughts? Yeah, blockchain is for games. Uh, it's kind of this like little cat phrase that kind of like landed landed in my head like maybe three years ago um, because I realized, you know, I think from my experience at, at Numeri, maybe, you know, just it sat with me that the things that work well in the space are games um, and everything that tries to be something else kind of like doesn't doesn't work maybe that goes back to trans question about like why why there wasn't an earlier mirror well you know it's like things that aren't games like just tend not to not to work that well and i just i remember having like a whole list of like these are the things that work these are the things that don't work and the things that work were always just like fun um and there were games and, and like what is a game um you know google is not a, a game google is like an information service you go there and you're, you're just trying to find something whereas like you know bitcoin is an accumulation game like a wealth accumulation game um those are just like different different things and so yeah i think the idea of like building these like collaborative games you can build on each other um and make like really complex things you know DeFi is kind of this like yield farming right like yield farming is is a game right it's not it's not really like a bank account <laughs> it's yield farming like that's the frame that actually resonated with people and then you know building these like profile picture communities i mean it is it is kind of like a game of like which tribe is like the best and so i think as long as things are games like they, they tend to they tend to work in this space and i would just you know recommend people think about that um it's even part of like the i think about it as like the founding myth of of ethereum is that vitalik was like you know playing this game and then the rules changed on him right like, i don't know if you, you know this but this is like the, the myth whether it's true or not i'm not sure but he was really frustrated that 
the the company could like take away his avatar that he had built up over time um and so he went and like was like i'm going to build this like other thing where people can't change the rules and it's like immutable contracts you know that's kind of like the, th the founding myth to me and so i think of it as you know continuation from that it is a gaming platform um and we need to build like cool games and games don't have to be trivial right like the, some of the most important things like if you read that book um infinite games you know the, po the point of that is that you know we want to build long-lasting games with each other that are collaborative um and that actually gives us a lot of meaning and so like we're like humans are kind of like game playing creatures and creating creatures and and DAOs are like basically ways to like create games as well yeah and then what are your thoughts on the content piece like have you seen that the content on mirror has been stronger than content that you would find on say medium or another blogging platform yeah, it's, it's like really early um, to say that. And I think it would be like biased just by like the right race, like the, the quality of writers who get into there. So definitely, I mean, obviously the average is going to be a lot higher than the average on medium, but that doesn't necessarily mean that like the incentives are what created that. Um, I think that in the future, I would love to say that the writers who, who post content on Mirror have a lot more tools, um, economic tools that allow them to fund their research. For example, we had one writer, Emily, Cole, who who funded a book on Mira. She raised, I think, $90,000. And then she went to go write a, a new book. And she was already a novelist. And so she's writing a next book. And people really wanted to be part of that. Um, you know, similarly with the Ethereum film, Infinite Gardens, like they raised a you know, million dollars, I think, to go do a film. So it's quite clear that you can fund your writing through this process. And you don't have to do clickbait and you don't have to do ads. Um, you can be a quality writer. And so I think that that's, that's the story that I hope plays out for sure. It's still very early. It, it is. It definitely is. Um, personally, from what I've seen, definitely higher level of content that I've seen on Mirror as opposed to any other publication. And even for me personally, like I feel a lot more pressure to like be more thoughtful in what I publish on Mirror than on you know, like Medium, for instance, which is probably like a big part of the reason why I haven't published very much yet on Mirror because I just feel so much more pressure there. But I think that's a good thing because that, you know, I think that's an ultimate win-win for, for everybody, for consumers, for writers, for everybody. All right. Well, typically we like to end every episode with a segment called Explain Your Tweet, but in the interest of time, you have both escaped this. Um, so let's just wrap it up. If you have any final thoughts, feel free to share. Otherwise, uh, just go ahead and share how people can get a hold of you personally if they'd like to. And then also uh, for people who are interested in learning more about Mirror or maybe getting on the platform and crowdfunding something or writing something, what is the best way for them to do so? Twitter is probably like the, the way that most people in the space communicate. So I'm strange chances on Twitter and g at mirror.xyz if you want to email me and g.mirror.xyz if you know you want to connect with me or whatever on, on Mirror itself. Same here on Twitter, Patrick X Rivera, and then p at mirror.xyz and then p.mirror.xyz. And then to learn more about Mirror, you can go to our homepage, mirror.xyz. And then there you get some information on right race, airdrop, and then also ideally the next couple of weeks, launch a new landing page with more info on Mirror. Awesome. Can't wait. Thank you both so much for taking the time and coming on here. Thank you everybody for tuning in. And we will be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.